The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Just last year in a case cited as R.V. Beaver, the Supreme Court of Canada cautioned judges about how to assess the objective grounds for arrest offered by police. If you listen to episode 24, you may remember that nine Supreme Court judges heard the case and they were split 5-4 to four on whether the experienced homicide detective had enough grounds to render his arrest lawful. Five judges found the objective standard had been met, while four said it wasn't even close. The majority also outlined several essential legal principles governing a warrantless arrest. These principles included the recognition that police officers often make their decisions to arrest quickly, in volatile and rapidly changing situations. They don't have the luxury of judicial reflection. And the officer must make their decision based on the information available to them at the time of arrest which is often less than exact or complete. And determining whether sufficient grounds exist for arrest or any other police power requiring grounds is one that calls for the application of common sense, flexibility, and practical everyday experience. But this wasn't the first time a court has said that common sense plays a role in evaluating reasonable grounds. For example, in R.V. Haw, the Alberta Court of Appeal said the reasonable grounds test must be applied in a common sense manner having regard to the circumstances in which the police find themselves and the entire constellation of facts. The court must ask if there are objectively verifiable facts that would have caused a reasonable person with the training and experience of the police officer who was aware of the information known to the officer to believe in the facts supporting the arrest. In R.V. Federets, the same court said reasonable grounds involves a common-sense determination. The Ontario Court of Appeal in R.V. Buchanan said a common sense and practical approach to consider all of the circumstances is called for. In R.V. Lofty, the B.C. Court of Appeal said the grounds upon which an officer bases their decision to arrest must be evaluated on a practical, common sense, and non-technical basis. And the Manitoba Court of Appeal in R.V. Penner said the trial judge must assess the totality of the circumstances in a practical, non-technical, and common-sense way, mindful of the knowledge, experience, and training of the officer. But just how common is common sense when it comes to evaluating an officer's reasonable grounds? Well, it does seem to be elusive, at least for some. Voltaire, a French writer and philosopher, has been credited by some for the following quote, Common sense is not so common. You have probably heard this yourself. With this in mind, I'm going to take a look at a Saskatchewan Court of Appeal case indexed as R.V. McPhee, 2023, SKCA 39. A link to the case can be found in the episode notes. What makes this case interesting, at least in my mind, is that it climbed its way upward through three levels of court and took almost five years to get there from the time a police officer made an arrest until an opinion was rendered by a panel of three appellate court judges. The case is not complicated. 
If you are a street cop, you've experienced something similar to what this officer experienced. You see a vehicle oddly parked at a commercial premise in the early morning hours. The vehicle is running. Is there about to be a break-in? Does someone need help? You feel you cannot simply ignore it. Fido, forget it, drive on, is not an option. So you do your job and decide to check it out. After speaking to the person occupying the driver's seat, you figure the person had too much to drink and shouldn't be driving. An arrest soon follows, and breath samples are taken that exceed the legal limit. But, as you'll soon learn, two levels of court blew it. So, as usual, we will start with the background facts supplemented with some information pulled from the lower court. It was 4.40 a.m., and an off-duty police officer was driving his police vehicle home after his shift ended. He saw a Ford F-150 truck parked the wrong way at a grocery store. The front of the truck was pointed toward the door of the store, perpendicular to the bumps that separated the parking stalls and was halfway between the handicap and the regular parking spots. The officer had never seen a vehicle parked in this manner before. The truck was running and the officer wondered if there might be a break and enter in progress. The officer stopped his vehicle, got out and approached the truck on foot. There was a man, subsequently identified as James McPhee, in the driver's seat. He was slouched over the steering wheel. The officer was concerned that McPhee may not be breathing or was having some type of medical issue. Upon closer examination, the officer noticed that McPhee's chest was moving. This indicated he was alive, but either sleeping or passed out. The officer also saw an unlit cigarette in McPhee's hand, and there was an open bottle of beer next to him in the center console of the truck. The officer opened the driver's side door of the truck and, as a safety precaution, reached in to turn off the engine and remove the keys. The officer then roused McPhee without great difficulty in doing so. Within the first few seconds of being awoken, McPhee appeared confused and did not know what was going on. When asked whether he needed assistance, McPhee responded, with very slurred speech, that he was just taking a nap. The officer noticed McPhee had very intense, bloodshot eyes, which were the worst the officer had ever seen. The officer also smelled a strong odor of liquor coming from McPhee's breath and he had a very droopy face. The officer believed McPhee's droopy face was the result of his facial muscles loosening up from the consumption of alcohol. Based on these observations and his experience, the officer concluded McPhee was impaired. The officer told McPhee he was under arrest and directed him to get out of the truck. The officer had to assist McPhee out of the truck and into the police vehicle because McPhee was having a hard time moving around. The officer then advised McPhee of his right to counsel, the reason for arrest, read him the standard police warning respecting the use of statements against him, and gave a formal demand to blow into a breathalyzer. When asked if he wished to speak to a lawyer, McPhee said, sure. He was transported to the police station so breath samples could be obtained. Despite unsuccessful efforts to put him in contact with a lawyer, breath testing was subsequently administered. Two samples were obtained, each resulting in readings of 130 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood. These exceeded the legal limit and McPhee was charged with two criminal offenses. Number one, having care and control of a motor vehicle while impaired by alcohol. And number two, having care and control of a motor vehicle with a blood alcohol level exceeding the legal limit of 0.08. So when this went to trial in Saskatchewan Provincial Court, one of the things McPhee argued was that his arrest and detention had been arbitrary because the officer lacked the necessary reasonable grounds. This was suggested to be a Section 9 charter breach, and McPhee wanted a remedy under Section 24.2 of the charter. Now when the judge assessed the reasonable grounds issue, he zeroed in on the officer's testimony and outlined six factors. Number one, McPhee was slumped over the steering wheel with an unlit cigarette in his hand. Number two, there was an open bottle of beer in the center console. 
Number three, McPhee was confused on being awoken. But this was something the arresting officer acknowledged would happen momentarily to anyone in a similar situation being abruptly awoken from a sleep. Number four, McPhee had an odor of alcohol coming from his mouth. Number five, McPhee had extremely bloodshot eyes. And number six, McPhee had slurred speech when he said, I was just taking a nap. The judge also suggested there may have been more that the officer could have done by way of observation and articulation in order to meet a standard capable of supporting his subjective belief that he had reasonable grounds. And then the judge went on to consider evidence that did not exist. Number one, there was no evidence that McPhee's slurred speech had continued after he had responded that he was taking a nap. Number two, there was no evidence about McPhee's driving, only evidence that he had parked his truck in an unusual manner. Number three, there was no evidence of McPhee having difficulty walking or having balance problems. And number four, there was no evidence McPhee had any comprehension problems. Because the judge concluded that the officer had made the decision to arrest and demand breath samples while McPhee was still in his truck, the judge would not consider any evidence that arose after that point. So what do you think? Do you agree with the officer that he had reasonable grounds to arrest McPhee and make the breath demand? Well, the judge agreed that the officer believed he had the necessary grounds. In other words, the judge found the subjective component of the reasonable belief test had been satisfied. This simply meant the judge found the officer believed in his own mind that he had enough grounds to arrest and make a demand for breath samples. But of course, as any street cop knows, that is only half the battle and the easiest part of the test. The more difficult part is convincing the judge that your grounds were objectively reasonable. Why is this more difficult? For starters, the judge won't have the training or the experience you have working the streets. They likely have never arrested anyone before, nor will they have interacted with the occupant of a vehicle passed out behind the wheel at 4.40 a.m. So do you think the judge found the officer's belief objectively reasonable? If you said no, you were correct. The judge speculated that the officer had been tired at the end of a shift and had wanted to get home and, as a result, had cut corners in his assessment of McPhee's condition. The officer's honestly held belief that he had reasonable grounds to arrest and make the breathalyzer demand were not, in the judge's opinion, objectively justified. The judge found the officer had enough grounds for a reasonable suspicion, which would have justified McPhee's detention and the administration of a roadside screening device. But these grounds fell short of the somewhat higher threshold of reasonable grounds for belief that would have justified an arrest and an evidentiary breath demand. As a result, the judge found the officer had arbitrarily detained McPhee contrary to Section 9 of the Charter. The judge also found, with very little analysis of the matter, that McPhee's right to retain and struck counsel under Section 10b of the Charter had been breached. He then went on to exclude the certificate of analysis of the breath samples and the evidence of the officer's observations. Remember, Section 24.2 is the provision of the Charter that allows a judge to exclude evidence obtained by the police in a manner that violated an accused Charter rights. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. The judge tossed the officer's testimony, which included finding McPhee sleeping in his truck, the smell of alcohol on his breath, and his bloodshot eyes. With all of this evidence excluded, the Crown was unable to establish the essential elements on either offense, and McPhee was found not guilty on both the impaired and the over-80 charges. Now, the Crown wasn't happy with his outcome, so it appealed the over-80 charge to a judge of the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench, now King's Bench. The King's Bench is the equivalent of the B.C. Supreme Court or the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. The Crown said there were no charter breaches, and even if there were, the evidence should not have been excluded under Section 24.2. It should have been admitted. 
But this appeal didn't go so well for the Crown. The appeal court judge rejected the Crown's submission and was unable to agree that the trial judge made a legal error. Here's what the appeal judge said, quote, The trial judge summed it up by noting that the totality of sleeping with an unlit cigarette in his hand, very bloodshot eyes, the smell of alcohol, manner of parking and initial slurring upon arousal, did not, in these circumstances, amount to reasonable and probable grounds because they were not capable of supporting the officer's belief that Mr. McPhee had driven while impaired or over the legal limit. End quote. The appeal judge found no legal error had been made with respect to the reasonable grounds issue, and it was not the appeal judge's role to relitigate or second-guess the decision of the trial judge who heard the case. Having held in favor of the trial judge's ruling on the reasonable grounds issue, the appeal judge found it unnecessary to consider any mistakes about the trial judge's Section 10 ruling relating to the right to counsel. The Crown's appeal was dismissed, and McPhee's acquittals were upheld. Still not satisfied, the Crown appealed again, this time to the province's highest court, the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. The Crown was of the view that the appeal judge also made a mistake by endorsing the trial judge's determination that the officer did not have objectively reasonable grounds for arresting McPhee and for making the breath sample demand. But this time, more than one judge would decide the appeal. A three-judge panel would now consider the Crown's arguments. These arguments included the claim that the appeal judge was wrong by failing to find that there was an objectively reasonable basis for making both the arrest, under Section 495 Sub 1 of the Criminal Code, and the breath sample demand under Section 254 Sub 3 of the Criminal Code, as it was then. Section 254 has since been repealed and replaced by Section 320.28. The Crown suggested that the appeal judge cited the correct legal standard, but failed to properly apply it. Let's now look at the arrest and the breath demand. In order for an arrest to be lawful under Section 495.1, the arresting officer must subjectively believe that there are reasonable grounds for making the arrest, and that belief must be reasonable from an objective point of view. Now, this so-called objective point of view is not to be made by a mere bystander, but a reasonable person placed in the position of the officer. As for the breath sample demand, the Court of Appeal said this, quote, Paralleling the situation with respect to the power to arrest, there is both a subjective and an objective component involved in establishing reasonable grounds for a breath sample demand. The officer must have an honest belief that the suspect committed an offense under Section 253, and there must be objectively reasonable grounds for that belief, end quote. Again, since the time McPhee was arrested, Section 253 of the Criminal Code was repealed and replaced by Section 320.14. What the Court of Appeal is simply saying is that whether reasonable grounds for belief is used in the context of an arrest or for making an evidentiary breath demand, the standard imports both a subjective component and an objective component. All of this is a no-brainer. Courts have been saying this for years, but here's what happens sometimes, perhaps maybe too often. A judge will understand the legal test for reasonable grounds, but will fail to properly apply that test to the facts as they find them. And when a trial judge's ruling on reasonable grounds is challenged on appeal, the higher court will show deference to the trial judge's factual findings. For example, whether an officer did in fact smell alcohol in a driver's breath, unless the trial judge made a palpable and overriding error with respect to that fact. Now, the existence of reasonable grounds is rooted in the factual findings of a trial judge. But, in deciding whether or not the facts as found by a trial judge in their totality were sufficient at law to constitute reasonable grounds, the trial judge must be correct. They have to get it right. There is no room for error. Because of this, an appeal court must take its own view of the facts as found by the trial judge and make its own determination of whether there were objectively reasonable grounds for the arrest 
and the breath sample demand. So what did the three Saskatchewan Court of Appeal judges decide when determining whether or not the officer's grounds were objectively reasonable? Well, like most courts of appeal, it first identified several points emerging in the case law concerning reasonable grounds. So here they are. Number one, in determining whether there are reasonable grounds, a police officer need have nothing more than objectively reasonable grounds to believe a person's ability to drive is slightly impaired by virtue of the consumption of alcohol. This is because an impaired ability to operate a vehicle is established where the Crown proves any degree of impairment ranging from slight to great. Number two, in order to satisfy the standard of reasonable grounds, the Crown does not have to prove that the inferences drawn by the officer were accurate, nor does it have to establish that there was a prima facie case for conviction or that the case against the accused was provable beyond a reasonable doubt. Reasonable grounds is a less demanding standard that signifies what has been described as the point at which probability replaces suspicion. Number three, indicia of impairment are not to be considered independently or piecemeal. Rather, they should be considered in combination. It is an error to dissect and consider the indicia of impairment in isolation. Number four, all of the incriminating and exonerating evidence must be considered. This said, evidence that the officer reasonably believes to be unreliable may be left out of the equation. Number five, there is no checklist of indicia of impaired driving that must be satisfied before an officer's subjective beliefs about impairment can be found to be objectively reasonable. Well, of course, it is easier to establish reasonableness when an accused exhibits all or most of the typical and most obvious indicators of impairment by alcohol, bloodshot and glassy eyes, slurred speech, reduced motor skills, odor of beverage alcohol, problems with cognition, erratic driving, the absence of one or more of those indicators will not necessarily be fatal to the Crown's position. Unlike what the trial judge in this case seems to have believed, the root issue is never whether the officer in question could have conducted a more thorough investigation. Instead, the issue is whether on the facts as found, the officer's subjective beliefs were objectively reasonable. And number six, there is no minimum period during which a police officer must observe a driver before making a breath sample demand. If the facts warrant, the basis for a reasonable belief as to the impaired operation of a vehicle can be established quickly. Now, a luxury the Court of Appeal had that you won't, in the moment you make your decision, is that the court was able to research, review, compare, contrast, and consider eight other appellate-level decisions that had involved factual situations similar to those involved in this case. Three from the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, two from the BC Court of Appeal, two from the Ontario Court of Appeal, and one from the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. Now, the trial judge and the first appeal court judge would have had time to do this research, but I have no doubt the officer in this case would not be able to say to McPhee before proceeding, hey, let's take a time out while I go and check a few other case law decisions, and then I'll get back to you. So let's review the evidence of the officer. McPhee was found slumped over the steering wheel of his truck at 4.40 a.m. There was an open bottle of beer in the console beside him. He held an unlit cigarette in his fingers. The engine of the truck was running. When the officer aroused McPhee, he sounded confused, although the officer acknowledged that this was not unusual in the circumstances, and his speech was very slurred when he explained that he had been taking a nap. McPhee had the most bloodshot eyes that the officer had ever seen, and his breath had a strong odor of alcohol. In addition, McPhee's face was droopy, a fact that McPhee did not challenge as being something associated with impairment or a high level of alcohol consumption. The Saskatchewan Court of Appeal concluded, 
that all of these observations, in combination with each other, did establish an objectively reasonable basis for McPhee's arrest and the making of a breath sample demand. Quote, they point convincingly in the direction of a meaningful level of impairment. In other words, there were adequate grounds for the officer to conclude that Mr. McPhee's ability to drive was at least slightly impaired by alcohol, end quote. And even though the officer did not see McPhee driving his truck and therefore did not witness erratic or improper driving, such observations are not a precondition to a conclusion that a person's ability to drive is impaired by alcohol. Remember too, the truck was parked in a very unusual way. It was positioned perpendicular to the bumps that separated the parking stalls and was halfway in the handicapped parking spot and the regular parking stalls. It was 4.40 a.m and there were no other vehicles in the immediate area of the parking lot. Although this did not point strongly or conclusively in the direction of the idea that McPhee had been driving erratically, it did, at some level, suggest that McPhee may not have been driving in the same way as would a sober driver. Therefore, it was not improper for the officer to see the way in which the truck was parked as helping to support a conclusion that McPhee's ability to drive was impaired by alcohol. So what was the outcome of the appeal? Well, unfortunately, because the first level appeal judge did not consider the question of whether McPhee's Section 10 charter rights had been breached, as the trial judge had found, the case was sent back to the King's Bench for a decision on the issue. But there's plenty to learn from the reasonable grounds ruling. The officer made the right call all along. He was correct. Not only did he have the requisite subjective belief for reasonable grounds, his grounds were objectively reasonable both for the arrest and the making of the breath demand. Yet two judges from two court levels got it wrong, and they had access to law reports and the same eight cases the Court of Appeal reviewed in finding they dropped the ball. And of course, these judges had a luxury the officer didn't have. Time. Time to research, time to reflect, time to ruminate, time to relax, and even time to take a recess. Just imagine what would have happened if these lower court rulings were not corrected. They would stand as is and no doubt be used as examples by a defense lawyer to sway a judge in another case to come to a similar conclusion on a reasonable grounds ruling. For me, given the facts of this case, the existence of reasonable grounds was a common sense conclusion. And I don't think you need to be a toxicologist to figure this out. You don't need to be an expert scientist schooled in the physiology or pharmacology of alcohol. You just need to be an ordinary person. Sometimes I think you might need to have a PhD or a law degree not to see it. Or, as Robert Greene Ingersoll, a 19th century lawyer, reportedly once said, quote, It is a thousand times better to have common sense without education than to have education without common sense. End quote. Kudos to the officer involved in this case for intervening in something that cried out to him for further investigation and, in doing so, removing an impaired individual from the care and control of a motor vehicle. This is, as any police officer applying common sense knows, a potentially deadly combination. For some officers at the end of their shift, or even during their shift, checking into something unusual like this might well seem like more trouble to investigate than it's worth. What would you have done? No doubt in my mind that this officer was no slouch. He isn't the lazy type, nor was he afraid to get involved. And kudos to both Crown lawyers, the one who argued before the Queen's bench and the other who argued before the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. They weren't willing to idly sit by and let a poor decision stand without an effort to correct it. So to you, thank you. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.